0: Hello, I'm Nick St George from the West Wilkes U3A and welcome to the U3A's Dialect Project. With me is the man at the very heart of this project, Norman Rogers. I'm delighted that we're going to have a chat for a few minutes before we hear some examples of dialect. So, Norman, tell me about your involvement with dialect and how that
1: started and and where it's taken you. Well, dialect really was my first language... My parents were dialect speaking, and I spent a lot of time with my grandmother. Now, my grandmother was born in 1857. That was well before the Education Act that introduced universal education. In other words, she learned to speak round about 1860. So, I learnt the dialect from her, the sort of dialect that would have been spoken in those days before it was... Heavily influenced by being able to read and write. So your
0: involvement in this is obviously very much a personal one. Yes. But you've taken it further than just speaking
1: it as a child and, and an interest in it. Well, I, was, uh, I did languages at university, I did French, and we did a lot of Romance linguistics. So when I uh, had time, I began looking into the dialect and finding there was a lot I was interested in, and uh, I wrote my little book on Wessex dialect, and I had to uh, study that, and I had to find out a lot about linguistics for that. The trouble was that a lot I found out was so useful to me in my job as a language teacher that I was rather distracted from the dialect until I actually retired. Now, you mentioned uh, the book Wessex Dialect. We've
0: called this project... The Wiltshire dialect project, but is that really accurate?
1: I mean, dialects don't know anything of county boundaries, do they? No, it's a much wider area. The area covered by the sort of dialect I speak consists of the whole of Wiltshire, the whole of Dorset, part of the western part of Hampshire, Gloucestershire and Somerset, down as far as the Quantocks. The Quantocks is a linguistic boundary. So should we really be calling this the Wessex Project? Well, I'd rather call it the Trowbridge Project, because that is absolute, you know, where I learnt to speak. There some very local words. One local word you almost certainly know is blind house. Blind house is confined very much to West Wiltshire. Other people call it a lock-up or something like that. And blind because there were no windows, I presume. No windows.
0: Let's... Go back really to basics if we can for a while and talk about the difference between dialect and accent because I don't think that's always
1: clear to people. Well, when you study a language, you have to study basically three aspects one is pronunciation, the other is grammar, and the third is vocabulary. Grammar is usually divided into two parts one is called syntax which is the construction of sentences, and the other accidents, which is the changes that come in words. Not very obvious in English, but very important in other languages. If you retain some of the pronunciation characteristics, although you speak with standard grammar and with standard vocabulary, then you can be said to have a West Country accent.
0: And when it comes to dialect, is one of those elements more important than the others?
1: The most important, really, aspect of dialect is the pronunciation. The pronunciation affects practically the whole of what you say. Now, dialect vocabulary is quite small. I counted up the number of words which I thought were dialect words which I used when I was a child, which I've known since, and I came to the conclusion there were 132. Well, it's not many, because your normal dialect, your normal vocabulary runs into two or 3,000. So where does dialect, whether it's Trowbridge or
0: anywhere else in the country, sit in relation to what I suppose we must call standard English, what most of us speak most of the time? What's, What's the relationship, what's the historical relationship been between the two?
1: Well, the historical relationship is one really of area and travel. When you have an isolated community, they can develop all sorts of characteristics which are just individual to that community. But when you have facilities for travelling, you can't just stick to your local accent. One of the big things was, of course, the coming of the railways. It would be all right if you lived in Trowbridge to go to a greengrocer. And say, gee, I a couple of pounds of HET, he thought. But if you went to London for the day on the train and you said that to a greengrocer in London, he'd either be absolutely astounded and not understand a word, or he'd laugh you out of the shop. But wasn't there some standardisation even earlier than the, the, when the railways arrived? One of the things I think you have to realise is that we only have written records before 1870 of the language. So we don't really know. Well, we only have certain indications of how they spoke. One of the early standards was when the writ of the king spread over the whole of England and documents were coming to the court, to the chancery, which were in all sorts of different dialects. And they decided they would use one standard spelling, and that was the standard of South East England. And so all documents were transcribed into that kind of English, and it was called Chancery English. Why couldn't dialect and Chancery English
0: or Standard English exist side by side? Why did Standard English ride so
1: roughshod over, over the dialects in most places? Well, of course, there's... A fair amount of snobbishness over language. And standard not only became universal because it could be understood, but also became, there was a sort of snob element. People didn't like to be dialect speaking. There is a certain idea amongst a lot of city people that people who live in the country are rather sort of retarded. So people wanted to uh, eliminate any dialect characteristics from their speech because they thought they would look as, as if they were bumpkins or yokels.
0: So dialect speakers themselves got the impression that they were perhaps looked down upon. I wonder if there was any movement from the authorities as well to try and suppress dialect speaking, say in schools.
1: Well, yes. I mean, we were told by our teachers, you mustn't say that. No one says that. Of course, you knew that your parents and grandparents and all your friends and relations said it. When we were at school, we had a lady teacher and she thought that we spoke dialect because our mouths weren't developed enough to speak proper English. And therefore, we used to go outside and stand in the playground and do jaw exercises to strengthen our jaw so that eventually we should speak standard English.
0: As dialects have gradually disappeared, there have been moves and people have worked hard, yourself included, to try and keep them alive and keep interest in them alive. But why does it matter? If they became impractical if we needed a standardised English in order to understand each other all
1: over the country, why does it matter if the dialects do die? Well, what we're doing, not is sort of trying to perpetuate dialect, but to record it. So there is a record of how people used to speak. Like, in, for instance, in Shakespeare, if you've got Shakespeare's plays, you've got the written text. You're not quite sure how that text was interpreted in Shakespeare's day. Um, and if you look at Shakespeare's plays, a lot of the time when it should be he, it's got A with an apostrophe. Now, that was an unstressed form of he, and it still exists in dialect, and in some of my extracts, you can hear it. So that tells us really something about Shakespeare.
0: That actually takes us on to a, a, a topic about the really fascinating influences there are that are still audible in some dialect words, not just from Shakespeare's time or from Chaucer, but also from elsewhere in Europe, uh, France, for example. Um, could you give us one or two examples of things that might have origins actually quite a long way away from Trowbridge?
1: Well, uh, one of the words that we had was croppy Sculpify down, to crouch down. Well, nothing exists like that in English, but that is the French verb s'accroupir Another one, which is even more sort of a exotic, my grandmother used to talk about a big brazen woman as a "girt varsnaris wench." Now, "varsnaris" is a Latin phrase: "volens nolens," willing, unwilling but that's the origin of that word in the Latin, and, of course, it doesn't exist in English. You said at the very beginning that the the Wessex dialect has a wide
0: geographical area. Within that area, are there specific,
1: almost like sub-dialects or mini-dialects? One example is that the present tense in this part of the country, you don't say, I go there every day. You say, I go there every day. As if you move off to east of the county, they say, I goals. Can you pick out a few
0: words that are really worth listening out for, words that are particularly difficult
1: for non-dialect speakers to, to understand? There are a couple in my extracts, a couple of words which are not usually used. One is gallard. That comes up in Shakespeare, by the way. But it means frightened. Another one, the turn. The chimney. If the
0: pronunciation is more important than the vocabulary, are there any sounds we should be listening out for?
1: Well yes, because one of the characteristics of West Country dialects is what is called roticity, and that is the deep pronunciation of R. Not round and round the rugged rocks a ragged rascal ran, but round and round the rugged rocks a ragged rascal ran. And if if you want to go with the R, there's another process called metastasis, which means a reversal of sounds, and a lot of reversal of sounds which involve the R, like gert for great, hern for run. So R, yes, the uh, one of the important sounds in the West Country dialect is the R. Norman Rogers for now, thank you very much.